So last week we read Romans 12 and 13, where Paul outlines how all the glorious truths of Romans 1 through 11 ought to play out in the everyday lives of believers. So because we've been justified by Jesus Christ, we're called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And because we've been justified, we're called to not be conformed to the ways of this world. And because we've been justified, we're called to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we see these teachings at work in different places. We see them at work in the church where we humbly use our God-given gifts to glorify him and serve each other. We see it in our relationships with other people, whether the other person is a brother or sister in Christ or an enemy. And we even see these teachings at work in how we respond to worldly powers and authorities. And like we stressed last week, it is crucial to remember that all the commands of Romans 12 and 13, the list of rules that Paul offers, they are not things that we do in order to be justified, but because we already are justified. Our justification is not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done. Now, if the commands of last week seemed a little more general, then this week is much more specific. Because as we move to chapter 14, Paul appears to focus in on a particular issue within the church in Rome. A specific challenge for these Christians in their time and place. However, just because Paul is addressing a unique problem within this particular church some 2,000 years ago, doesn't mean we can't learn from his words. Paul's instruction may have been directed at them but it's still incredibly relevant to us. That's because churches today, including this church, still have to deal with the things that the church in Rome dealt with in Romans 14. Namely, Paul gives them instruction on how to maintain a church's unity in the midst of conflict and disagreement. So open up to Romans 14, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take one home if you don't have one. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to gather and sing and pray and take communion and give and hear from your word. And Father, I pray that this Sunday morning, all the things that we do, all the preparation that goes into it, all the songs that are practiced and the sermon that's written, and the lessons that are prepared for the kids. All those things would ultimately be for your glory. They're for our upbuilding, they're for our good, for our encouragement, for our sanctification, but they're for your glory at the end of the day. And so, Father, I pray that what we say and do here this morning would bring you honor. And, Father, thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ that Paul has made so clear in the book of Romans. Uh, Father, I thank you that it's by your son's broken body and shed blood that we are saved. I thank you that he died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, and we thank you that he will return. And Father, I ask that you find us faithful when that day comes. We love you. We glorify you. Be with us as we read from your word today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you may be shocked to hear this, but sometimes not everyone in a church agrees with each other. I know, that is really hard to believe. 
That's because while we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not clones. And that means that every once in a while, hopefully not too often, but every now and then, fellow believers are going to butt heads. And if we're not careful, the frustration we experience in those moments could lead to long-term feelings of bitterness and division. So what do you think we should do to avoid bitterness and division? Well, you could take one of two extreme options. Number one, our church could enforce a rigorous expectation of uniform agreement on everything. And we could kick out every single person who disagrees with us. Now, the biggest pro is that we'd all be on the same page. No more disagreement, right? The con, of course, would be that our numbers would dwindle and we might be called a cult. And that may be accurate. But then if you go to the other extreme, you swing the pendulum in the other direction, we could just decide to not have any convictions at all. We could agree that we don't need to be on the same page about anything. We could have no deep convictions whatsoever, and we could just sit in a circle, sing songs, and hold hands all the time, right? Well, needless to say, neither of those extreme options is very wise. But thankfully, Paul gives us a third way in Romans 14. Now, there are some things that we must agree on to call each other Christians. A few examples would be that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, and that he physically rose from the dead. If you don't believe those things, we can't call each other Christians. We have to agree on those. And then there are some things that we should probably basically agree on if we're going to be part of the same church. These may be things like how we understand the authority of Scripture, the practice of baptism, or a church's leadership structure. Those are things that while you can still call each other brother and sister, if you're not on the same page about them, it's probably wise to agree on them if you're going to be a part of the same church. But then there are things that fellow believers within the same local church can agree to disagree on. And those are the things that Paul is talking about today in Romans 14. So let's start reading in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. 
So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So in this passage, there are two main groups of people who Paul addresses. Group number one is referred to as the weak. Now, Paul does not use the word weak as an insult. He's not being rude. He's not calling them names. And he's not questioning their faith in Jesus. But Paul identifies the weak as those who continue to do things they don't have to do as believers and choose not to do things that are not forbidden as believers. So I know that's a little bit confusing, so let's try it again. They are people who continue to do things that they don't have to do as believers. And they choose not to do things that are not forbidden as believers. So, for example, the weak person in Romans 14 chooses not to eat meat or drink wine that was probably once involved in a pagan ceremony. Even though there is nothing inherently sinful about eating that meat or drinking that wine. But they still choose to abstain. They still choose to honor certain holy days that they honored before they believed, even though those commands do not apply to Christians. So if you put it all together, it appears that the weak people in Romans 14 are likely, mostly, though maybe not exclusively, Jewish Christians. These are people who fully trust Christ for their justification. Paul never casts any doubt on that. But at the same time, they just have a hard time letting go of some of those old Jewish restrictions, those old Jewish practices that were once so deeply ingrained in their hearts, their minds, and their bodies. So that's group one, the weak. Group two, then, of course, is the strong. And that group includes Paul himself. And the strong take the opposite viewpoint of the weak. These are Christians who have no problem eating that meat. They have no problem drinking that wine that the weak people abstain from. They have no problem ignoring all those supposed holy days. They sleep in and don't think twice about it. So the strong are most likely Gentile Christians. Their consciences are not troubled over meat, wine, and holy days the way the Jewish Christians' consciences are. They never really worried about those restrictions and practices to begin with. So they have no problem ignoring them. So we have two groups, the weak and the strong, and both groups are justified believers in Jesus. Paul never questions the legitimacy of either group's standing with God. They're all Christians. However, they just can't see eye to eye on these issues. And the fact that Paul feels the need to offer them guidance tells you that it may have been a source of conflict. It may have been a source of division within their church. 
So here comes Paul, and he shares wisdom with both groups about how to navigate these tensions in a godly way and how to maintain their church's unity in the midst of their differences. So he gives them some instruction. First, we start with the strong. Paul says, welcome the weak. Welcome the weak. In other words, embrace those Christians who disagree with you as brothers and sisters in the fullest sense of the words. Not just people to argue with. Not second-class citizens in the church that you just have to put up with. Welcome them as brothers and sisters because that's who they are. And then he says not to despise the weak. Don't look down on them because they choose to abstain from the things that you partake in. Don't write them off as old-fashioned, unenlightened, party-pooping prudes. Say that three times fast. Party-pooping prudes that you can keep at arm's length. That's not who they are. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. So welcome them as such. And do not despise them, even if they disagree with you. And then we get to Paul's words to the weak, his guidance to that group. Do not pass judgment on the strong. Do not pass judgment on them. Be careful that you don't become arrogant, stuck up, or holier than thou. Just because the strong partake in things that you've chosen to abstain from doesn't mean they aren't as good of Christians as you are. Again, these are issues that we can agree to disagree on, not tests of faith. And then Paul gives guidance to both groups. Verse 5, be fully convinced in your own mind. Be fully convinced in your own mind. So whatever conclusion you come to about some issue or conflict that Christians can agree to disagree upon, whatever side of the debate you fall on, don't come to that conclusion without thought and prayer. Know what you believe about that issue and know why you believe it. Don't just fall on the side that you would like to be true. Be fully convinced in your own mind. That something is permissible or forbidden according to the highest, most objective standard we have for our belief and practice. That being the word of God. So be fully convinced in your own mind. And whatever you do, do it in honor of the Lord. So if you are fully convinced that you can eat that meat, drink that wine, or ignore those holy days in a way that honors Christ, then do it. Eat, drink, sleep in. But if you are fully convinced that you honor the Lord by abstaining from that meat, not drinking that wine, and waking up early and honoring those old holy days, then you should do that. And of course, if you can't say with a straight face that what you're doing brings honor to the Lord, then Paul says you shouldn't do it. And then his final piece of guidance to both groups is leave the judgment to Christ. There are things in this world that we are in no position to judge someone else on. Namely the things that scripture does not clearly command or forbid for followers of Christ. And ultimately Jesus is wiser than we are. He's the one that we will all answer to. So we'll let him 
judge those things. So there will be disagreement in the church about what God's people should and shouldn't do. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And the challenge is being unified in the things that we must agree upon and showing grace in the things on which we're allowed some wiggle room. Now, the scripture that we just read can be a lot to take in, partially because it may not be as black and white as we often like scripture to be. This seems a little bit subjective. It seems a little bit on the case-by-case basis. So before we look at the rest of the passage, let's pause, take a deep breath, and allow me to tell a story. And you might consider this a case study of sorts, one that I think could be relevant to what Paul teaches here. So many years ago, there was a minor dispute between two people at this church. Hard to believe. I know, but this is a real story. I won't name names, and neither of the families involved are here now. And don't ask me to name names, because I won't. So one day at the end of a worship service, in this room, we had a child run to the back of the sanctuary and start eating all the leftover communion bread and drinking all the leftover juice. So a person in the church found that to be inappropriate and maybe a little bit distasteful, And their concern eventually made its way to me. So I made the child's parent aware, and I suggested that they not allow their child to do that again. I explained that a member of the church found it to be inappropriate and a little bit offensive, and they were concerned that other believers might feel the same way. So can you please just not let your kid do that again? Now, naturally, the child's parents were shocked and were scandalized that someone would bring this up. I mean, come on, they're just kids. They're not hurting anything. It's just bread and juice. The leftovers are going to get thrown in the trash. The juice is going to get poured down the sink. What's the big deal? They clearly disagreed with the person who brought their concern. So why do I bring this example up? Well, I bring it up because we had two believers who didn't see eye to eye on an issue, and both were bothered by it. And it was an issue that scripture doesn't clearly address. There is no passage in the Bible about how to dispose of extra bread and extra juice that doesn't get used in communion. So neither party was obviously blatantly in the wrong. So what do you do in that situation? Who's the weak person in this scenario? And who's the strong person in this scenario? And if we're trying to apply Romans 14... How might that help us navigate the disagreement? So think about that. Chew on it. We'll come back to it. Romans 14, starting in verse 13. Paul continues. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus That nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So as Paul continues, he seems to be speaking mostly to the strong group. But his overarching guidance is important to every single Christian all the time. Verse 13, never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In a church full of differing opinions about all kinds of things, Scripture tells us to focus on loving our fellow believers and putting their interests ahead of our own rather than loving ourselves and doing what we want. Be aware, be conscientious, be respectful of your brother or sister's differing opinion. And if someone finds something you do to be wrong, even if technically you're allowed to do it as a believer, don't flaunt it in front of them. Don't pressure them to join in. In fact, be willing to give that thing up from time to time if it might cause your brother to stumble. Because the good of your fellow believer And the unity of the church is far more important than your freedom to do what you want. My desire for my brother or sister in Christ's peace, joy, and fellowship should be so much greater than my desire to do the things I want to do. And I should shudder at the thought that my actions might in any way tempt a fellow believer to sin. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these little ones likely refers to Jesus' disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In other words, you are better off wearing concrete shoes in the ocean than leading one of Jesus' disciples into sin, making one of his disciples stumble. Now, in verse 14, Paul admits that he himself is fully convinced in his own mind that there is nothing inherently sinful about eating that meat or drinking that wine. But he says that if a brother or sister is fully convinced in their own mind that it would be sinful sinful for them to eat, sinful for them to drink, then they shouldn't do it. Because again, if you're convinced that doing something does not bring honor to the Lord, then don't do it. For you to do anything else would be sin. You know, Romans 14 isn't the only passage where Paul finds himself navigating a situation like this. In 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, 
Paul gives some similar guidance to the church in Corinth. Now, the scenario isn't exactly the same. It's a different church in a different place, different people, different dynamics. But a lot of what Paul says there echoes Romans 14. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 8, Paul says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. In other words, you can live without that meat. You can live without that wine. You can live without doing what you want. So don't do it if it hurts your fellow believers. Continuing on, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. Paul says, And so by your knowledge, referring to the strong person, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, you may think that you're just more enlightened than they are. They're just misguided. They're just uptight. They just need to come around. But if you make them stumble, you sin against them and you sin against Christ. Paul did not think twice about giving up his rights, things he ought to be able to do without criticism or controversy. Paul gladly gave those things up if it built up his fellow believers and if it maintained the unity of the church. Moving forward, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. Paul quotes his opponents and says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Just because you can do something as a believer in Jesus doesn't mean you should. So focus on doing the things that build up your neighbor and be willing to give up the things that don't. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you do or whatever you don't do, Regardless of what side you fall on, regardless of whether or not you're weak or strong, whatever you do or don't do, do it all for the honor of Christ. Now back to our case study, the infamous Prairie View leftover communion kerfuffle. Who's the strong person in this scenario? I think it's the parent of the kid eating the bread and drinking the juice. They're the strong person. Because technically they had a point. We believe the spiritual significance of communion is found more in the occasion than in the physical bread and physical juice. So from a purely practical angle, when communion was over, that child really was just eating bread and juice. And that person was also right that that extra bread, that extra juice was just going to get thrown away. It was just going to get poured down the sink. And they're also right that there isn't any clear rule in Scripture 
about how to dispose of leftover bread and leftover juice. You can see why they came to the conclusion they came to. But now who's the weak person in that story? I think it's the person who was bothered by the kid eating the bread and drinking the juice. But if you put yourself in their shoes, they had a point too. You can't blame them for finding that a little bit off-putting. I mean, while it is just bread and juice, and there is no clear scriptural guideline about how to dispose of the extras, the practice of communion should be treated with a sense of reverence and respect. And a kid running to the back of the sanctuary and scarfing it all down before people can even get up out of their chairs isn't exactly reverent. And it does seem a little bit distasteful. So if we try to apply Paul's words in Romans 14 to that scenario, then what do you think the solution is? Well, Paul says the strong should welcome the weak and not despise them over their concerns. The weak should not judge the strong for having a different opinion. And both parties should pursue peace and mutual upbuilding and seek to maintain unity in the midst of their differences. So at the end of the day, I again encourage the strong person to tell their child not to do that anymore. Stop drinking the juice. Stop eating the bread. It's no skin off their kid's nose to abstain from extra bread and extra juice. They're probably not going to starve. And it prevents a brother or sister in Christ from being scandalized or offended. But what other scenarios do you think Romans 14 might apply to? We don't have time to examine all the different possibilities today, but you might immediately think of a few. What about issues of debatable biblical interpretation? Is it okay for me and Zach to disagree on how exactly to read Romans 7? Yes. As long as we're both within reasonable bounds of sound doctrine, we're allowed to disagree. And we should treat each other with grace and kindness in our disagreement. What about the issue of alcohol, one that often comes up in churches? Can Christians who abstain from alcohol entirely and Christians who responsibly partake coexist? Yes, they can. Both may have some decent points on their side of the debate, but Scripture doesn't give a universal blanket rule about whether a Christian should or should not drink. What about Sunday morning music preferences? What about Sunday morning dress codes? Can Christians who prefer hymns worship with those who prefer contemporary music? Yes. What about Christians who insist on wearing a suit and tie and Christians who look like they just crawled out of bed? Can they coexist? Yes. Because when it comes to issues that scripture does not clearly address, Christians can agree to disagree. And if we take Paul's words in Romans 14 seriously, we will not allow ultimately trivial differences of opinion and practice to divide us. We will be fully convinced in our own minds of what is wise, what is appropriate, what is honoring to the Lord, and we will act accordingly. And if the peace and the upbuilding of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the unity of the church is at stake, we will do whatever we can, short of sin, to reasonably accommodate those we disagree with, even if it means giving some things up that we think we ought to be able to do. 
We will not judge each other over minor differences of opinion or practice. God can do that. We'll focus on walking in love. Now, like any other church, I'm sure we have plenty of differing opinions here. But we also have common ground where it matters. We have the same justification. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same eternal reward. We eat the same bread. We drink the same juice. We have the same Lord. And that's where Paul points us to in chapter 15, verse 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So even though we are not clones, may we be united in our prayer, united in our desire to imitate our Lord in this way, to glorify God the Father with one voice, to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us, giving up his life for our sins in order that we might be saved. At the end of the day, we have him in common. And he is strong enough to hold us together even when we disagree. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that is always relevant. Even though it was written so long ago, it is living, it is breathing, it is inspired. And so it still provides guidance. It still provides authoritative wisdom and instruction for individual Christians like us and churches like ours to this very day. And Father, thank you that this church is diverse. We have different groups of people from different backgrounds and different experiences and just about every single demographic category you can think of. We've had or have someone here. But Father, along with that diversity, which can be beautiful in its own way, it can also be challenging in its own way. Because with diversity comes disagreement. With diversity comes not always seeing eye to eye. But I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us humility to navigate those disagreements well. Give us wisdom to know what things we can agree to disagree upon and what things we do need to be on the same page about. And Father, again, regardless of what side we might fall on on some Christian debate or some Christian disagreement, I pray that we would operate the way Paul tells us to in Romans 14, that we would not judge or despise or look down on our brothers and sisters. May we worship you with one voice. May we welcome each other as you have welcomed us by the broken body and shed blood of your son. Lord, tie us together, bind us together, help us love each other even though we're different. And may this all be for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.